Today on Landry.audio, we've got Penelope Spheris. Um, I know her personally from a lot of the uh, documentary films that she made while I was growing up, and in particular, her jump into Hollywood films. Uh, when I reached out to her uh, initially, I was saying, look, most of these films that you made uh, in Hollywood, like Wayne's World and uh, Little Rascals and even Black Sheep, uh, most of those happened when I was in my sort of early teens, so I remember going actually to cinemas to to watch it. So, um, look, thanks for taking the time to, to join us and speak with us today, Penelope. Well, my pleasure, Jess. You must be a, a, a mere child to have been a teenager at that point. Well, I'm, I'm 37 now, so I, I guess I'm not, oh. a, I'm not a kid anymore, but uh, I guess I haven't... Um... Yeah, that's so crazy. So am I. <laughs> you got into the system very, very early then. It's millions of dollars that they let them play with. 13, I started directing when I was four. Really? Okay. Well, look, that's probably a good no, place not to really. start. So one of the um, one of the things that I've always found, uh, again, th- th- these are pre-internet days, but what I could never wrap my head around is, um, like, I-, I think when I messaged you about doing this, when there were still things like blockbuster videos, in their previously viewed bin, I had found a tape and it had like Megadeth on the cover. And this this VHS tape was called, you know, The Decline of Western Civilization Part 2. I had no idea what it was about. I just knew that Megadeth was on the cover. So I was going to, you know, pay my 10 bucks, <laughs> buy this, take it home and, and watch it. And uh, and again, I wasn't big into that sort of Hollywood glam scene. I was more into, you know, thrash metal all the time. But I, I thought it was just a, a fascinating documentary and introduced me to a few new bands at the time. And then I recognized your name as well because by that point in time, I think you had already done Wayne's World and maybe a couple of other things. And I could never, um, and there were no information sources back then to explain to me why the woman who was doing the heavy metal documentaries was also doing these Hollywood comedies that, that seemed to be making a lot of money. <laughs> so that's, it's probably a good place to start in terms of, you know, how you, how you kind of kicked off your career. Cause uh, I mean, from my understanding, you're not so much a, a metal person as you are more of a, a punk person. Well, that'd be sort of safe and Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll go more with the punk than the metal, but I like them both. Definitely. Yeah. So how did you get started off in this? doing these docos? I, I actually, uh, when I got out of uh, film school at UCLA, I, uh, I got a call from a guy named Peter Philbin, who was uh, an executive at CBS Records, and um, he asked me if I wanted to do a music video. And I said at that time, which I'm going to imagine is probably 1970, uh, I said, what is a music video? And he said, well, we just figured out we don't need to send the bands around the world. We can just shoot some film on them and then send the film. And it's so much cheaper. So uh, I started a company called Rock and Reel, and I filmed a lot of great bands back then. And um, so music and film were always, you know, uh, locked together for me with with my career because I'm a fan of both, really. Mm. And, uh, you know, at the time, when people look back on on some of these films, you really have some of the only, uh, you know, visual representation of the onset of punk at this point in time. And as someone who wasn't, well, I wasn't even born when all this stuff was kicking off. I guess one of the questions that I have is, uh, I've read some previous interviews with you and you talk about how fascinated you were by it. Can you provide a bit of an insight to how punk came about? Because I recognize well, punk I, music. Well, I, I want to the... comment, if you don't mind, just 
Let me just say that I was just about ready at that point to jump into Hollywood mainstream because I had produced a movie with Albert Brooks called Real Life at Paramount, and all of my friends were these, you know, uh, mega names uh, um, because of, of having worked with Albert. I, I you know, I met uh, Rob Reiner and Penny Marshall and uh, uh, uh Jim, what's his name, that did The Simpsons, and uh, Jim Brooks. They're all called Brooks. Um, and so I had all these friends that just, you know, when I said I was going to do a movie about punk rock, which is the decline of Western civilization, they all said, what are you, nuts? You just need to go, <laughs> you know, what is punk rock? Nobody knew what punk rock was back then, you know, but that was a music that I... That I was going to clubs and I was seeing it, and I felt that it was actually some sort of cultural shift. And, and in fact, as you look back, it was. Where did you notice it coming from? Because was it a you know British and English thing initially that was brought over? Was there a, you know a domestic scene in, in LA where you were uh, at at the time? The answer is yes and yes. Um, there was, of, of course, the Sex Pistols, in my opinion, sort of set it all off. And um, I had given up on music at that point because uh, as much as I'm, I'm respectful of the heritage, you know, all there was on the, on the radio were the Bee Gees. Yeah. <laughs> okay. and, right? And, um, and uh, you know, disco music. And I had get, sort of given up on music at that point because it wasn't my sort of thing, you know? Um, I mean, I'll listen to it today just for fun, but it wasn't my thing. I think I thought I was too cool back then. Um, and then all the clubs in LA started, uh, all the clubs, no, let's put it differently. Let's say there were these underground, hard to find little cracks in the wall where there would be these, um, really innovative, um, punk rock bands. And I would go to those shows, you know? Cool. Um, so, I mean, you decide to do this. I mean, how it sounds like, you know, with some of the names that you're mentioning with Al Brooks, Penny Marshall, Rob Brown, you're already sort of invested in that scene. How, how did you integrate yourself into there? And, and why take such a detour to go into, you know, documentary film versus something that's much more lucrative? Uh, like I don't know. I, I mean, I did very well, ultimately, in my career. I can't complain just financially, you know. But I, at that point, was totally broke. And um, I actually made seven movies, or I should say six movies. Wayne's World was my seventh movie, and that was I was 45 years old, and that was the point where I, you know, I went from poverty to being a millionaire um, because <clears throat> Paramount was kind enough to give me a percentage of Wayne's World because they just thought it, you know, they didn't think anything would come of it, you know. Mm. Uh and and so you, you do the first one. I mean, we'll, we'll get into the Hollywood stuff, but um, how, how do you end up deciding to do part two, which is more metal? And, and what I'm leading to out of this is, um, you know, for the last few years, to me, the, these were all sort of ancient history movies. But over the past, what, five years, or so, there's been a huge revival of these where you've now, they've been released as a trilogy. You're doing, oh, I know. you know, and it, it just sort of came out of the blue. Because I'm like, yeah, I remember watching this stuff like in the, you know, early 90s around yeah. my point in time. But uh, it seems like a lot of people have picked this up. But you, you do the first one, 
And then what makes you, um, how do you end up gravitating toward the, you know, the, the metal and I guess a, a lot of the glam scene is in that, that movie as well? Well, it, it really is such a stupid reason. You know, I was driving down uh, Sunset Strip one evening after I had done, uh, you know, the first Decline movie. And I noticed people walking down the street that were dressed so differently. And um, actually, not people walking down the street, but they were spilling out into the street from, from the Roxy and the, the, you know, the whiskey and those clubs up there. And they were spilling out into the street. And I'm like, well, this is different. And so I thought, well, if it's that popular here, I better check that out. So I did. And then a casual acquaintance I knew that was working with uh, IRS um, um, World Media, it was called, uh, so a grand name like that. Um, and, and he asked me, it was uh, Paul Collishman, he said, if you could do any movie you wanted right now, what would it be? And I said, the decline part two about um, the metal scene right now. So it's, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, for me, I, I think I'm more of a of a, of a sociologist or you know or an anthropologist uh, as opposed to even a filmmaker because I really like to study human behavior and it's in, in and I use the music as a backdrop you know to study um, just human behavior and trends and that sort of thing you know. So do you know the um, do you know the movie like Metal Headbangers Journey by by new guys like Sam Dunn who have been doing that for about a decade plus now? I uh, no, I didn't. I don't know who that is. I'm sorry. Oh, I'll have to send that don't over. Don't be to mad, you. Sam. No, that's what he's, <laughs> he's done a few, much more sort of in in the vein of heavy metal. And he's um, uh, again, from what I can remember, he actually got his degree from a university in Canada, I think in British Columbia, around anthropology. Uh-huh. And he's actually charted sort of the the tree of life of heavy metal, how it's descended from like Sabbath down to like black metal and grind and, and all these variations uh-huh. of it, which is quite fascinating. He's done a series of movies and now I think he does that full time as a business. It's uh, it's, it's pretty cool. Well, I, like I think that's cool, you know, because here's the thing, as you were just mentioning that the, the young people uh, today, um, they like certain types of music and they don't know where it came from, you know? And because, Back then, not everybody had an iPhone where they could run around documenting it. And I was fortunate enough to notice that something different was happening. And I had cameras because I had the, the rock and reel company. Um, and so uh, the cameras were rented from the, the, the record company. So I figured, you know, I might as well go out and shoot this, this movement, which I felt instinctively was important to document. And you know, I mean, anybody could have done it. It's just that I did it, you know? Yeah. And then um, I was completely unaware that, that you had actually filmed another documentary of, of like, the, the OzFest tour in the late 90s when it was popular, but it got shelved or you didn't have the rights to it or something. And this is something I only found out quite recently. Oh, that's one of my favorite films I've done. And it's so sad because I worked on that film for three years. Um, Sharon uh, Osborne and her crew told me that they had the rights to the music. Oh, they didn't tell me. They told my producers. And they they had the rights to the music, but in fact, they didn't. And so I worked for three years doing a film that never got released because um, Sharon, I guess, didn't want to pursue getting the music rights. But it's a great film, and I'm very, very proud of it. And I can't tell you the the anguish I went through uh, for for not having it uh, having it ever be seen, you know. 
Yeah, because that, that's sort of my, like, those are my late teen years, those OzFest tours, you know, with, with Slipknot and Pantera and System of, that was sort of really Yeah, we my, had, we had Slipknot, Zombie, uh, Slayer, and of course, uh, Sabbath. I love how every time she does a tour, it's Sabbath's last tour, or last, All the time. <laughs> and then, yeah. then they do another the world tour, yeah, it's the same. We've got, um, so down here, uh, in a couple months, we've got a festival called Download coming here, so I'll get to see Slayer again. Slayer is apparently on their end of the world tour, so I reckon they will finish up, though. I, I don't, you know, they've, uh, had, had a death in the band, there's been a replacement. Um, we've got Kiss as well coming down here that I'm gonna see at the end of next year as part of the, the V8 supercars, and of course, Kiss is now on their end of the world tour again, which I think is the <laughs> third or fourth time that they are doing the it. The end of the world will be when Jen, Gene Simmons uh, says goodbye to this planet. That'll be the end of the world. <laughs> I yeah, love it. When he decides you know, that Ozzy, that money Ozzy did a tour after he retired one of those times, and the tour was called uh, Retirement no Tours. That was... Oh, is that the one? Okay. Tour. Because <laughs> I know he did a No More Tours, I think, in 92 after the No More Tears album came out. And then, yeah, then, there, then the Ozfest was apparently supposed to be the last of the Sabbath shows. Then they did a whole – I've seen Sabbath twice since then. And, and uh, look, I'm happy it's for shameless. a band like Sabbath. It's keep, shameless. Keep they just do it to sell tickets. Well, of course. But, look, I'm, I'm buying. <laughs> so, yeah, right. Say, I know. People have fun. It is fun. what it is. Um, so have you had any dealings with Sharon Osbourne then? Because she, a lot of the media sort of portrays her as, as a contentious person, and, and what you're saying sort of leads into that, um, I guess, narrative. Well, you know, if you want to have a person like me say something negative about Sharon, I would have to hire bodyguards, you know. So I'm not going <laughs> to hire bodyguards. You don't want to mess with Sharon Osbourne. I said to her personally, I said, Sharon, before I met you, I thought I was the coolest bitch in the world, okay? And then I met you, and she is really a force of nature, I must say. And I mean that in both a negative and a positive way. <laughs> I don't know how to explain it other than that. Cool. Um so, I mean, did, did you, well, I guess, uh, first of all, when you're making these films in the 80s, I mean, both punk and metal have effectively sort of died off. They, they live, um, you know, they, they've had their heyday and they're more of an underground culture now. Do, do you think these are just blips in time or do you think like a lot of revivalist movements, these things can come back at some point and become mainstream? You know what I think is, tra oh, possibly, but, you know, I can't predict the future, but I think what's mo almost tragic is the fact that there, that music um, has become so sort of uh, homogenized because of the digital technology. And I feel kind of bad for people who didn't have the privilege that I did growing up, which is to experience all these different kinds of movements and genres of music that were popular. And it was, it, it, I mean, I, I started with Elvis, you know what I mean, and kind of checked out when Kurt said goodbye, uh, Cobain. You know, so I I have, I went through, I feel very privileged that I went through very specific, you know, uh, segments of, of, of music that these kids today, I don't know, I, 
I'm glad they can listen to whatever they want, but honestly, it all seems so kind of mishmash to me. Yeah, you, you're not wrong about that. I, I remember reading an article and they were saying that like with, with modern pop music, they've got it down to the point where the foot tapping matches the rhythm of your heartbeat, I think. So it's like every mass-produced song, I don't, I don't know what the average beats per minute of a heart is, but it's designed around that. Well, I can tell you it's between 60 and 100 is, is normal. There you go. And it goes for, for three minutes. It's supposed to have, you know, six choruses with a bridge. It's got auto tune over it. And, and even you said, I'm, I'm not a big fan of it, but now we've got, it's, it's now part of media conglomerates where it's done as part of a TV show like The Voice or America's Got Talent. It's packaged yeah, together. Yeah. But yeah it's I, all I, packaged I, and formulized, you know? Yeah, very much so. And so it's, it's weird to go back and listen to, especially like seventies rock music where there's, you know, some of these songs are just a 15-minute jam session that have been recorded and released. It's uh, it, the, the musical landscape has really changed quite a bit. Awful. Yeah, I know. I know. But like I say, thank God. I, you know, there's, there's, a, there's uh, good things and bad things about getting older. Well, one of the good things is I got to live through those, those different, you know, uh, parts of music. You know, there was rock and roll, and then there was the, the hippie um, psychedelic music, and you know, it, it it just keeps going on from there. And and I'm glad I lived through all of them, you know. And how do you feel about uh, aging, particularly in LA? So again, I, I've I, I'm not from there. I'm not part of that system. But any sort of media I read, everyone talks about how LA is a it's a really messed up place with a you know a, a real dog eat dog world of people trying trying to What's make it. funny because. When I uh, when I did Wayne's World, I uh, having having not uh, ever had any money before that, I didn't know what to do with my money, so I invested in real estate. And I was complaining the other day to somebody that a ten I had a tenant that's paying ten thousand dollars a month for one of my properties, and they they bounce two checks, but they've got a Maserati in the driveway, a Range Rover, and a Hummer. Okay, and uh, the guy said, "Well, isn't that Los Angeles?" And I'm like, "Oh yeah, I forgot. Yeah, uh huh." <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and so if we start going back to your career, I, I mean, the other thing that was interesting to me is, um, you, you know, I watched quite a lot of films growing up, and your name, along with, um, again, I don't know if you ever knew her, but the director Catherine Bigelow, as you said, Penny Marshall, there are very, very few uh, women directors who were able to sort of get into the Hollywood system. It's areas like sexism and toxic masculinity are, are a big, big talking point these days. What was sort of your experience? Um, Cause I mean, I mean, we don't even have any of these cultural revolutions around that. I mean, you're sort of in the belly of the beast in the seventies and eighties and into the nineties. Well, yes, I know. I know Catherine and I knew Penny, God bless her. Um, the the Me Too movement, I have great respect for. Uh, I will personally work with the Weinsteins, but I was too old to be assaulted. <clears throat> you've done, uh, when a, I you've did, done a story I did. on that. I remember reading a, a recent article that you penned in October, I think, and that's where I picked up a bit of the information because it was still – it was Bob and Harvey back then before because they had ended up splitting the business or something, didn't they? It, uh, it, well – Back, yeah, I was working with uh, Bob mostly on a movie called Senseless with uh, David Spade and Marlon Wayans, and uh, it was total uh, emotional torture, you know. But 
who am I to get on the Me Too movement and go, I was emotionally tortured. You know, these poor women have other accusations that are a lot more, you know, disturbing. Uh, I was barely able to handle working in this business, to be honest with you. And as I look back, I, I think if I would have said, oh, I'm being treated this way because I'm a woman, I don't think I would have continued. But I didn't do that. You know, I had friends that were guys that were not doing very well. I was doing better than them. So I just thought it was a tough business, you know. But, uh, yeah, I got discriminated against quite a bit. And I don't jump into the Instagram and Twitter uh, rages that go on, you know, just because I feel that I could do a Roseanne if I wasn't careful, you know. (laughs) It's like say something that backfired for God's sakes, you know, I'm not saying she's right or wrong. I'm just saying that I just stay away from it all because pers- first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm a very private person and, um, I try to, I've never, I've never had a publicist, you know, I try to just lay low and, um, you're, you're very kind for calling me. People just call me out of the blue and, and want to talk to me. But, uh, I don't, I don't uh, jump into the publicity world, you know? So what, what was your, because uh, when I read this piece, like it sounded, um, again, I'm going on the background that I read offline, but as you had said already, you got offered the opportunity to do Wayne's World off the documentaries. That ended up being a, a surprise hit because originally I thought it was going to tank. And then I think he ended up doing, you know, Black Sheep with Chris Farley. And then this popped up. And from what I was reading about you, they, uh, Bob in particular, started doing a lot of screen rewrites and then you said that that's sort of where you you really hit the block in the road and you reckon that's why um your career didn't advance beyond that point so yeah i i think that they messed the movie up to be honest with you because it was a great script to start with or i wouldn't have taken it you know and it's a great concept because even today if you look on television half the ads are 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 car automobile ads Half the ads are new drug ads, and Census was about a kid in college, Marlon Wayans, that um, was part of a test program for a new drug, and it went wrong, you know, and it was hilarious, and it was great, but then when I kept getting goofy rewrites from the Weinsteins, I kept saying, guys, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, it doesn't work, and then I I had to shoot it anyway, um, or I would be fired. And so uh, afterwards, when the film didn't work, um, I got blamed for it, you know. And I, I, I don't know any specific incident where somebody, you know, said, oh, well, you didn't, you didn't get a job after Senseless because they bad-wrapped you, but I could feel it, you know. And they do that, you know. And so was uh, were the Weinstein brothers, uh, I, I, and again, I don't know if it was Miramax before or became afterwards, or were they known to be heavy-handed on all the projects that they were involved in? Oh, my God, yes. I mean, is there a way to make heavy-handed a more powerful phrase? Yeah, of course. And you know what? Here, here's the thing. They, they, they were heavy-handed with the films that worked and the ones that didn't work, you know? And so... Uh, you know, you can't say they were all wrong because they made a lot of great films. But with me, it was not a good experience. All right. And, you know, dating back to this time, I mean, you had mentioned that, that you're working predominantly with Bob. But did Harvey already have this? Because what's funny to me about um, all all the sexual assault 
allegations about Harvey Weinstein is that they pointed out that pretty much for a decade there were jokes uh he was they would um you know take bites out of him at at Oscars and uh BAFTA and all those programs so it was it seems to have been widely known was this going on or was this apparent all the way you know back, back then in the early 90s to me personally no because like i said i mean i did Wayne's World when i was 45 years old so by the time I was dealing with these guys, it was probably, you know, like 50 or something. They're not going to hit on me, you know. I, they want the 22-year-olds, you know what I mean? Um, not they. I shouldn't say they. It's, it's, it's Harvey uh, that's being accused. And by the way, I'm not saying he's guilty. I'm just saying that he's being accused. Uh, so uh, don't get the Weinsteins after me because they have a lot more money than I do. Uh, to defend, <laughs> but uh, you know, my my dealing really was more with Bob. And to be honest with you, I'm 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 very fascinated by by um, uh, crazy uh, geniuses. Okay, and he might fall into that category, but but it could also be torturesome. You know. So how how do we go? Um, you know, you've mentioned Wayne's World a few times. So so let's get into that. Um, part of the fascination around this is is your involvement with Lauren Michaels, and as a as a Canadian, he's he's a bit of you know royalty around our parts, along with John Candy and that SCTV crowd. How do you move from uh, documentaries, your involvement with Lauren, to getting the Wayne's World gig? Well, I knew Lauren before he started Saturday Night Live, and I remember him sitting in the living room of my house when we were friends. And he said, I want to start a late night, you know, live TV show in New York. And maybe it'll be like even Saturday night. You know, I mean, I remember Lauren sitting there saying that that's how long I knew Lauren. Uh, and he wanted me to go to New York uh, uh, when uh, he started the show. And I didn't want to, because I had just I have a young daughter and I wanted to stay out here in Los Angeles. And he said, well, if there's anything that I've got going out there, would you help me with it? And I said, of course I would. And that's when I, he called me and he said, Penelope, I've got this young comedian. His name is Albert Brooks and he's funny as hell, but he doesn't know shit about making movies. So will you teach him please? And so I did. And, um, I taught Albert really a lot. Uh, well, I taught Albert everything about how to make a movie. And, um, <clears throat> he taught me uh, everything I needed to know about Hollywood because he was pretty well connected here. What's required? Um, it, like you mentioned these names. They're very familiar to me and people that would be my age and older, but oftentimes after a certain point, um, you notice that their output really, really slows or stops completely. They still have a strong reputation and they're well known, but as the, as they get older, like I include guys like Mel Brooks in this as well, does it become harder for them to get a project greenlit or is it just that now that they've made millions, they don't want to make movies anymore? I think it's a combination of both, but can I tell you a really funny Mel Brooks story? Yeah, of course. When I did The Little Rascals, he did a cameo. Uh, as did Donald Trump, by the way. Yes. Um, but I was mixing. I was mixing the Little Rascals, and Mel was mixing Men in Tights, I think, in the room next door. Okay. And so we're sitting in there mixing away, and Mel Brooks comes in the room, and you stop everything when that happens, and we say, "Oh my gosh, Mel Brooks! Oh my gosh! Hello, how are you? Oh, this is great." And and he uh, stood there really quiet for a minute, and then he farted really, really loud. <laughs> <laughs> and, 
and left. He said, have fun, (laughs) bye-bye. He came over into our room, purposely farted, and left. Right. That that sounds excellent. Welcome to Hollywood. And so then, uh, only because you mentioned it, I mean, he did only have a cameo, so I didn't think it was worth mentioning, but having having dealt with the Donald, who's now the most... um, powerful man on planet earth what what was your experiences with him dating back then well you can ask nancy pelosi if he's the most powerful man on the earth but anyway uh donald trump did a fine job when we shot uh little rascals you know he pulled up in his limo and parked right next to the camera uh, i thought he was going to run it over and um got out and waved to the crowd like the rose parade queen and then he went to his seat, and he did his, you know, he followed direction, he did the work, uh, and then he left, you know. Uh, I don't think, you know, either one of us knew that we were dealing with a future uh, president, you know. It sounds like that's as much as you want to say about that. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was... Uh, I, I got a call from, I'll say this, I did get a call from what we call the Black Tower, which is uh, the building at Universal where the um, uh, executives uh, hung out. And I didn't, I didn't even really, uh, they, they, they liked uh, casting cameos in, in um, uh, Little Rascals. And so they give me a call and they go, how about Donald Trump? as um, the father of uh, the rich kid. Uh, what the hell was his name? I can't remember now. Uh, and so I said, well, uh, Donald Trump, let me think. Uh, he's a rich guy in New York. Oh, yeah, that works. Okay, fine. So that's how that happened. I didn't even re- really know who he was, you know. Fair enough. So uh, if we go back to, you know, you, you mentioned the issues that you had with the Weinsteins and, and those issues, and, and as directors get older, their output stops. Do you, do you think if you had a... Could you take a script to get greenlit these days, or what would be the process if you wanted to get involved again? The process now is such that if I want to work for, uh, I don't know, one, let, here's the thing. They don't pay you anything anymore, okay? Uh, it's one thing being a woman in the business and having made it through, and I was very fortunate and ended up with, um, you know, couple of hit movies and uh, I did very well financially. Um, I have a pretty good reputation for having did what I did, but if I wanted to get a movie made today, um, I would probably have to do a movie for one or $2 million and um, I would not own it. And I would be paid about $50,000 and with my real with my real estate that I've managed to handle, you know, I I I make um, so much more than that. It doesn't make sense to do it. And I, I know that makes uh, probably makes the listener think, oh, well, she just d- does it for the money. No, I would like to do. I've got scripts. I've got ten scripts sitting there. I'd like to do, but you know, the way things are done now. Uh, are not the way I like to do things. And mind you, I'm not like I got to take a limo home from work. I'm not that kind of person. I put the money on the screen. But my um, my sister works as a set decorator, and and I hear how it is now. And you know, there's no budgets, there's no crew, and if there is, they don't know what they're doing. And you know, it's it's like I don't want to work that way. 
So what has changed? I mean, outside of, uh, I guess, not having seasoned professionals, they've cracked down on uh, illegal downloads. We've now sort of moved to streaming. We've demonstrated that sort of blockbuster movies still make money, and now with streaming, it provides an opportunity to you know license and sell more indie-based films. So what has, what has dried up? Why has it changed? I think it's what well, the problem has always been, which is those people who are in a position to uh, give a movie a go, um, you know, start production, um, don't really have a very good taste or an education about making movies. Most of them come from business schools, you know, or law schools. And, and uh, I think just, the people making the movies don't have don't have the wherewithal to to do it right. I mean, I personally can't look at movies anymore. I gave up about three or four, maybe five years ago. You know, I, I start looking at them and it's like unwatchable for me. Um, I'm the same way. Everything um, I, I find it really hard to watch a film because they all follow the same the identical script. They just sort of replace the actors and yeah, and, and the scene. I find it very hard to, a lot of the time. So I, I understand that, but, um, okay. So what, you, you know, I mean, what, what's your connection? You mentioned that you're in real estate now. Do you ever want to get back involved or, or do some sort of projects again? I have a couple of documentaries that are, um, brewing about subjects that I'm passionate about. And so I'm just waiting to see, I just finished building another house. So I'm right now waiting to see if, in fact, those things are going to pan out. Um, and mind you, it's not about making money on those. It's, it's really about being passionate about the subject matter. Um, but I, I try not to watch movies because I feel like it almost, um, what should I say, uh, taints my, my creative brain, you know? <laughs> Because they're so bad. I get what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. So, Ed, uh, in, in one of the articles that you had written, I mean, you mentioned that uh, when Wayne's World um, was a success, your agent had arranged uh, like significant residuals on it, which, from my understanding, uh, still probably pay to this day. But one of the things you had mentioned is that you needed to get involved with the Directors Guild of America. Can you sort of explain to people on the outside why? You know, being part of that uh, union is so necessary as opposed to working. Well, what as a nice question! Thank you for saying that. Um, well, just I like I said, Wayne's World was my seventh movie, and I did six movies before that. Um, that I don't get any residual checks for at all, and I don't really have any. Um, uh, rights in terms of you know creative rights uh if somebody wants to take a chunk of the movie and just chop it up and make it theirs i can't go at them and say hey you can't do that i directed that you know there's a there's a a, a tremendous um advantage to be being a member of the director's guild because you know they protect your creative rights and then they also get you uh residuals in um you know, whenever whenever the film is shown and they're always constantly keeping up on the different uh, ways in which the film can be uh, seen. So, um, you know, I, I get, you know, foreign levies and all kinds of payments from, you know, for all the movies I did with the studios, you know. Yeah. Um, in uh, I, I didn't bother to ask this, but when we talk about Decline Part 2, there's a particular scene, and, and again, we 
I was the only guy I knew growing up, growing up who had, who had owned and watched Decline Part 2. But as I've gotten older, there's one particular scene that everyone remembers about that, and that's the... Chris um, Holmes. Who's the, Chris Holmes in the pool, <laughs> pissed on vodka. Why? So when I was watching it alone, I'm just like, oh, he's just drunk. But this particular scene is iconic when sort of when when we when it's ever sort of brought up what why is it what do you think it is about that scene that has lasted so long with people what a good question okay you're good at this um i'll be honest with you when we when we filmed the scene i said to jeff zimmerman the cameraman i took him behind a tree we were filming at miles copeland's house i took him behind a tree and i said this is a mess we're gonna have to <laughs> we're gonna have to shoot this again because this did not work. And um, so then I went to the producers and I said I I need to reshoot this scene. And they said we don't have any more money. And I said, well, you mean I've got to try to put that together and make it part of the movie? I don't think I can do that. But I tried, and I did. And ironically, it's the part of the film that everybody remembers most. Now, is it just because he's pissed? Or is it the fact that his mom, or he's uh, is apparently still living at home? Like, what, what do you think it is about it? Because it's not unusual to see, or, or certainly in that scene, to experience drunk people. Is it just that you caught it no, on film? No, it's, it's, I think it's the fact that, um, say, or... What should I say? He wasn't especially famous at that point, but he only became famous after the movie. Um, but right. I think because the whole, you know, rock and roll glam kind of, you know, legend and this is what we want and the fame and the fortune and all that, I, I think the, the reason it is uh, remembered is because it's, a, it's proof that that sort of thing doesn't make you happy. As a matter of fact, it can make you very unhappy, and we see that in the news every day. So it's it's a continuing theme that 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 I think that um, people like to know. You know, have you ever run into anyone from those films? Because I, I again, I haven't seen this film in in probably twenty years. But I, I mean, there's there's a there's a ten a five to ten minute segment at the beginning of all the kids who say I'm going to make it no matter what. Have you ever followed up or run into any of those guys? Well, I mean, my daughter especially uh, is in touch with a lot of them. Um, I, I think for me, as I said, I do this mostly as 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 a um, observer of so of of human behavior. You know, like for me, the most important message is being rich and famous doesn't make you happy, and you know. We, I, I, I stay in touch with some of the people, um, and you know, he, here's the thing: if you're a musician, you're always a musician. You know, if, if you're in it just to try and get rich and famous, then you're probably not still playing music. You know, um, and I think you know it, it applies to every area of the arts. You know, if you're uh, an actor or a filmmaker or you know, a painter or whatever kind of creative activity you do, you can't depend on 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 rich and famous to be to be satisfying. You have to depend on doing the work as being satisfying. You know. Mm. Interesting. So, uh, 
good segue to it. Uh, again, we're returning to a, a couple of uh, films, but I sort of I wanted to I wanted to wait a bit and ask this question. So, so you work on on Wayne's World, which again is still it's still one of my favorite films. I, I think it's it's just it's fantastic for what it is. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but it's funny enough about um it just pretty much a couple of guys who don't really have any direction. I, I mean. The, the, big Aerosmith fans. I mean, not quite heavy enough for me, but it's 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 good and it, it serves its purpose. But there, you had commented quite a number of times, and I understand that that hatchet has been buried. But you had a uh, you did you did not like Mike Myers, and apparently you had a very difficult time working with him. Oh, I thought that's not true. That I didn't like Mike Myers when we were filming. I liked Mike Myers, and I still to this day like and have a special affection for Mike Myers, to be honest with you. And that's because I have this, I mean, I work with Richard Pryor, I work with Danny DeVito, I work with so many comedians, okay, so many big-name comedians, and they're, they know the dark side, you know, and so they have, like, I don't know if it's bipolar or whatever kind of personality, but they make us laugh because they pull themselves out of the dark side, you know, and Mike was like that, and he would be difficult sometimes. But here's my thing, is that if, if an actor is difficult and he has talent and he can deliver the goods, then you put up with the difficult, you know? And that's the way Mike was. So what made that difficult, though, I, I guess is what we're asking. What, what was hard to deal with? With Mike? Um, well, he... You know, like he got pissed because uh, we didn't have margarine for the bagels on the craft service table. We only had butter. You well, know, naturally. Shit like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, see, I'm not going to work because we don't have butter. I mean, we don't have margarine. You know, I'm not going to work. Okay, so we got to smooth that over, you know. Um, th- there were just little tweaky things, you know, but... Ultimately, like I said, you put up with it because they're profoundly talented, and Mike is profoundly talented. And the only reason I think there's this, you know, uh, it'll go down in history of this, the, the there was a d- dissension between me and him is because, um, you know, when we got down to having the final cut of the movie, he wanted me to change it, and I refused to because I knew that it worked. What did and he want different? When I re- 11 pages of single space writing is what he wanted changed, you know? And I, I said, no. And then Lauren said, Penelope, if you think that Mike will let you do Wayne's world too, if you don't change this, then you're crazy because he won't. And I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not going to change it. What do you think about, cause it, again, one of the things that's very interesting to me, and there's a couple of names here that I'll ask you about as well is the longevity of some careers, how some careers drop off and never return, and then how some people drop off for 20 years and then pop up out of the blue again. Like, I mean, even even if we take a film like Wayne's World, um, you know, if if I'm listening to people on YouTube, if I'm listening to, like, uh, Norm MacDonald or Dennis Miller, guys like Dana Carvey are still mentioned about how they're good buddies with him. I haven't seen that guy in a movie in years, but somebody like Rob Lowe. Who, Dana? Yeah, but uh, someone like Rob who, Lowe, Dana? who was a second. Dana had a health problem. Yeah. Yeah, he had a very serious heart issue that he had to deal with. That's why you don't see you didn't see Dana for a while. So what about guys like... Um, but I think also... I uh, Pardon? No, no, please. 
I was going to say also, um, you know, some some of us get disenchanted with this business, you know. Uh, I, I don't remember which old 1930s star it was, but um, Gloria Swanson or somebody that says, I just want to be alone. You know, who said that? I don't remember, but, you know, I just want to be alone. Um, and, and, you know, some people just get fed up with it, you know, whereas others have this, this way of being able to stand all of the, all of the terrible, you know, ups and downs that it, that it, that it brings you, you know, I personally, that's why I don't go on social media. I don't want to deal with that stuff, you know? Oh, it's toxic. But, uh, you know, and, and I hadn't even thought about it until you mentioned, but guys like Rob Lowe just seemed to be, you look left, you looked right. He's, well, Rob's he's an alien. he may not Let's be the just star, but he's just there. Take him out of running because he's an alien, okay? <laughs> <laughs> well, he still looks the same, doesn't he, as well? He's going, going on whatever age he's at. So, anyway, you move on to this, and then, um, like, I mean, when you think about it, you, you, you've, You've worked with the who's who of all these sort of classic comedians, and then you end up on a, another film that I, that I remember went and saw in cinemas with uh, with Black Sheep, and you're working with uh, with both Chris Farley and David Spade at that point in time. Um, you know, take us through your experiences with Farley. Oh, he was a total pleasure when I was working with him. Um, honestly, he never ever was. Oh, I'm sorry, my dogs are barking. He never, ever was stoned, you know, or uh, he was actually asked me sometimes, could I leave early because I want to go to an AA meeting, you know, things like that. Because, you know, Chris Chris was really, really, really trying hard at that point. But um, after after uh, Black Sheep, uh, he went downhill pretty fast, you know. Yeah, right. And uh, I had also read something about you. You said that you had suggested that there might have been a point of contention because David Spade was already a pretty well-known commodity from SNL, but he was uh, taking the back seat to Farley now in, in some of these buddy comedies that they were involved in. Well, you know, here's the thing. If you look at any <clears throat> classic comedy team, okay, I'm talking way back, like, you know, Laurel and Hardy and, uh, you know, uh, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis and blah, blah. Those guys, what, what makes them funny is that they compete with each other, okay? And they don't necessarily like each other, but it's a weird dynamic that happens when they feel threatened by each other and argue with each other. And, you know, they were always... David especially kind of always wanted to have a little more attention because he felt that I was giving, he even said it to me. He's like, you're giving, you're giving too many close-ups to, to Chris. Why are you giving Chris so much attention? And I didn't want to say, but it's like, to me, he's funnier. Okay. So I'm shooting him more. Okay. I didn't say yeah. that, but that's what I was thinking. You know, um, at the time, were David's these pitched whole... as buddy comedies or were they Chris Farley comedy vehicles? Oh, well, I only did, I didn't do Tommy Boy, I just did mm-hmm. um, uh, Black Sheep, you know. Yeah. Um, and when you say where they pitched, it, it, it's more like um, here. Were they supposed to be a Chris <laughs> Farley film, or were they, were they sort of the No, SNL no, that was a Chris from... Farley film. Okay. I got a call from Sherry Lansing at Paramount on a Sunday, and she said, Penelope, we really need to have you direct this movie with Chris Farley. And I said, well, send me the script. And she goes, we don't have one. And I, and I'm like, well, how can I say I'm going to do a movie? You don't have a script. And she goes, 
Uh, here, hold on. Let me get John Goldwyn on the phone. So she gets John Goldwyn. I have the studio on the phone. Uh, well, the co-head. And, and um, you know, she says, tell Penelope why she should do this movie. And, oh, I said, well, I want to work with Chris Farley, but I need to know what the script is. And they said, um, well, well, we'll get a good writer. We probably, The fact is, the next day, Monday morning, they were going to have to exercise their option to do a second movie after Tommy Boy with, with Chris. And they wanted to just uh, get him on board. So they asked me to be the director because he wanted to know who the director was. And, um, you know, Goldwyn says, um, you know, we'll give you $2 million to direct it. And I just sat there silent, you know, and then he goes, okay, 275. <laughs> hey, man, that's not a bad offer. Not a bad offer. Um, I know. So I directed, I directed a movie. I didn't even know what the script was. So did you have any, uh, you know, what, what, I guess what, one of the things that's interesting to me is, is what sort of happens within that bubble? Because the, the way that, uh, TV shows and film portrays it is, it's just this, this mess of irresponsible people who are put into really high paying jobs who don't know what they're doing. But I mean, you, some of the people that we've had the opportunity, you sound down to earth. You sound like you know what's going on, but this is certainly not, not as what is portrayed sort of within the Hollywood system and, and how crazy LA is supposed to be. Well, I'm different than an executive, you know, an executive at a studio and a director, obviously are very, very different. Um, most directors, I believe, are, you know, creative people and most executive are business people. And God bless them because I can't do that too well. <laughs> but, um, you know, they're not basically creative people. Yeah, fair enough. So a um, few other guys. So we're talking about guys that pop up out of nowhere again. When, when, it, when, the, when Three and a Half Men showed up on TV about a decade ago or something, John Cryer was... Two and a half. Two and a half men, sorry. Rather, I never really watched the program. But with Charlie Sheen, I just went like, (laughs) where did John Cryer come from? That's another name I hadn't heard of for about two decades. But you had spent a lot of time working with John is a classically trained actor. John is classically trained. He's a great actor. He's a wonderful human being. He's a pleasure to work with. And uh, he and I did a movie together in in 1986 called uh, Dudes. And um, it never got released either. So many of my movies never get released, but then later people liked them. I don't understand that. Um, John Cryer is uh, a lovely, lovely, lovely man. I'll tell you that. So do you reckon, you know, when you talk about these getting released, I mean, surely there's got to be an opportunity for you to do sort of these series on Netflix that get a lot of greenlit with, you know, projects on. Oh, no, no. Every, every, no, honestly, Jess, every interview I go to turns out to nothing. Right. You know, and I'm not complaining. Fuck them. You know, I, excuse my language. <laughs> I, I, I have enough money to live for the rest of my life. I'm fine. You know, but I, I'm not going to any more of these meetings because when I go, uh, I don't get the job and I feel stupid. You know, yeah. here's the thing. At the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's, it's one thing to be a woman in Hollywood. It's another thing to be an old woman in Hollywood. Oh, okay. And now I'm experiencing that. But that's fine because I already made my money, you know. <clears throat> So when you talk about getting older, I guess this is probably a good point. I'm I'm running out of questions of things I want to ask you, but um, you know, you mentioned that's okay. I'm running out of energy. Your, your background. What do you? Because you had and and from what I can gather, you were a writer on Roseanne years ago, and and she put out a tweet, as you said, that that went out into the 
the Twitter sphere that got her thrown under the bus on a on a number one rated program. Um, I mean, I, I certainly don't think I need to ask you if she's a racist because I don't think anyone buys into that narrative. But um, you know, certainly I I'm sure you're aware and would have an opinion on this situation. My opinion is I love the crazy geniuses. Okay, that's my thing, and. She's crazy, and she's a genius. Is she? Okay. And so is Mike. Okay, so is Mike. I worked with Richard Pryor. So is Richard Pryor. Okay? They're, I love them. And whatever she did, obviously, Ambien or no Ambien, was stupid. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, I've got Roseanne stories you wouldn't believe. Uh, well, tell us. But no, no, I want to believe. No. I want to believe. <laughs> oh God! Um, no, it, it, you know. I, 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 here's the thing. I it's actually kind of interesting, just on a karma level, uh, to have so much success and then go shoot yourself in the foot. You know what I mean? It's like, what the hell was she doing? You know? I I I don't know. Um, you know, Roseanne to me was great for a lot of our relationship. And then there were times when she just like flipped and turned on me, you know, and um, yeah, it's okay. I can handle that, you know, Um, but uh, anyway, hey, I'm wearing out here. Um, You have to remember you're speaking to an old woman director here. <laughs> that's, that's all right. That, that's fair enough. Look, we can leave it there. I was just going to, um, we were, uh, j- during, we took a, a really long Christmas break this year for about two months and went back through North America. And one of the places we that spent the long. most amount of time, yeah, we were, spent about 10 days driving through Louisiana all the way through Alexandria up to Natchez, down to New Orleans, back through Shreveport, mm-hmm. Baton Rouge. Now, Lake Pontchartrain. You, you're from that neck of the woods, aren't you? Yes. Well, I was born there. Uh, yeah, my, my, my parents owned a carnival and we traveled around on the carnival until my father got murdered when I was about seven years old. And um, I'm making a movie about that, so I can't tell you anymore. Well, I guess that gives us a segue to look at having a... a a part two of this chat somewhere down the road. Another conversation. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, Penelope, we'll leave it there. I appreciate your time. I'll ask you a question or two once we get off the air, but um, look, pleasure to speak and, and thanks for taking the time out of your day. Well, you're, you're a total delight and thank you so much for thinking of me. Of course.